Hello and welcome to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with your hosts Clark Burrow and Lewis Cleland. We're absolutely delighted to welcome another special guest on the show and this week it's actually one of our friends as well who has been spending a lot of time with us in lockdown, um, taking care of her well-being and through some cold water therapy and you know plenty of hiking as well. Probably more so Lewis than me for that but um, no Lewis we've had three weeks off, we're back at it, how does it feel? I'm absolutely delighted to be back here. Um, good to have Big Ross back on the show. It was a, a good episode we had him on before where he was talking about attitude versus ability. But this week we've got him on to talk to us a little bit about imposter syndrome and the inner critic. And it's interesting um, to hear Ross's views on these different kind of topics in psych- psychology. And during lockdown, Ross was doing his six-mile walk. He was walking the Falls of Clyde Loop at New Lanark all the way around to Cutfield Bank. And he would touch on every day a new, a different topic in psychology, going through the letters of the alphabet. So I think it was like A for anxiety, B, I can't remember what he was doing, but he kind of went through the full alphabet. Um, he did that 26 days consecutively. So one of them was imposter syndrome. And it was a really interesting um, area that he spoke about. And he, he raised some interesting facts about imposter syndrome and how many people actually experience it on a kind of daily basis at their work and um, how we can be so self-critical and how we actually feel like we don't deserve the role or position that we actually do. So I thought that was quite interesting because, like me, um, I'd imagine a lot of people have experienced that and to some degree, um, some maybe a wee bit more severe than others. So it'd be interesting to hear his thoughts on it and um, get a wee episode on it. So something different away from the actual teaching and learning side of things. Yeah, and I suppose it does impact the teaching and learning as well. Um, the mental health and well-being of teachers impacts on the, the learning in the classroom so now we're looking forward to having Ross back on the show he was on at the start of, start of uh, the podcast as Lewis said so this is the first time I've had um, a guest back on so we hope you enjoy it as much as we will I'm sure so as always if you see it on Instagram at uh, a wee bit of everything podcast or Twitter at burrow under slash mister or at Cleland Lewis 94 we would appreciate it if you could give us a share or a retweet as this helps us get the podcast out there so others can listen to it as well. Let's get Ross onto the show. Well, hello there, Mr. Hislop. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast to share your insight on imposter syndrome and the inner critic. We can uh, heard your vlogs during lockdown and that's what can uh, sparked us to get you back on and talk to us a bit about it. How you been? I've been really well. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and get a bit of the banter. It's good banter. to see you Ross, it's been, a bit, it's been a while since I've seen you, it's good to ah, see you've you. Been, you've, been, you've been doing what you've been doing and you're just, you know, nesting. Mm-hmm. Keep on we'll keeping be, on, we'll be, back, we'll, we'll be back on it shortly. Keep on keeping on buddies, we're all in it, we're all in it together. Absolutely. Right, so question one then Ross, we heard some of your vlogs in lockdown on imposter syndrome and then a critic, could you talk to us about what that actually is? the kind of definition behind imposter syndrome and kind of some of the stats about it because that's what I found kind of most alarming. Alarming about the stats? Well, alarming stats. Alarming stats. The first thing about it is we call it a syndrome, right? And a syndrome would kind of, it would indicate that that was measured on like the DSM-5 or like an American psychiatric disorder. It's not a disorder. So personally, if we were being splitting hairs about it, I don't think syndrome's probably the right word for it. It would probably be more something like 
fraudulent feelings, feelings like fraudulence, um, maybe even imposter feelings or something like that. But, you know, most people identify it as um, the imposter syndrome. And um, I think the blog that you're referring to was around about, it was about women, wasn't it? It was about women were... I think they experience it more than guys, is that right? Yeah, there was a survey that I'd read by the ACF um, that had been done, again, like so many surveys, you know, to get a, an accurate account of it over the over the spectrum. It's a really difficult thing to do and achieve, but um, to memory, that survey showed up that sort of 66% of um, women surveyed showed up to have feelings of the imposter syndrome compared to only like 50, 55% of men. And um, it seems as if women are more likely to experience feelings of inadequacy in the workplace. And um, as I said, it's really difficult to get an accurate, accurate results in that. And I mean, if you were to ask older leaders or older women, they would probably experience it to a lesser degree than their younger counterparts. So, you know, we're saying the stats are higher, but, you know, do I know that the stats and the, the, the statistics were taken over a forced age group of equal amounts of ages? But um, I think we all feel it and we all suffer it from time to time. Um, I, would, I, I think when you asked me that question, um, I kind of threw up. I wondered why that could be. And, you know, is that still the unconscious biases that's held against women? Um, you know... In certain workplaces, do you mean? Yes, like, or women in, women in, in workplaces general. in general. Um, you know, asking me that question to make me think about it. What was it? Women have only been voting for... We're in the midst of the elections right now, aren't we? It's been on the news for the mm. last sort of 24 hours. But women weren't allowed to do that 100 years ago. And um, are those unconscious narratives that men are still the dominant species and should hold a position at the head of the family table? Um, that may still be a hidden belief which fuels such statistics. Uh, I think it's a really interesting topic, and um, but it is fantastic, really fantastic, to see women leaders breaking through those biases by taking dominance now in, in business and sport. And, you know, they got a lot of praise that women leaders in the world that dealt with the COVID response was mm. was, 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 was better than, than that done by men. Just need to look uh, at New Zealand. New Zealand? I didn't know her name, that's why I didn't say it. Ju I just said Ju women. Jacinta something, I think her name is Jacinta. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I would, I would think that the majority of us in the early stages of our careers are more likely to suffer for these feelings because we've not got the same perspective. Um, I guess you, you could surmise as well, looking at it, that, that older uh, generations that are still in employment might be likely to feel more like imposters because the stakes... Or are higher when the younger generation are coming through, the older people might feel inadequate and might start to feel like an imposter based on this new generation that's coming through. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, surveys would show us that the older you get, the more that syndrome, if you like, seems to diminish in us.
I mean, the longer that you're in a role, the more hindsight you're going to have. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have created an ability and have learned from our mistakes, hopefully. We've learned from our mistakes. Yeah. And we, and we can start to read the bumps in the roads better. And then we can weigh them up against other situations when something goes wrong. Against a younger leader, well, they've not got that. They've no tra- their roads are a lot less travelled than uh-huh. that of someone that's older. So, so basically, the kind of, what it is in a nutshell is you get into a job and feeling like you don't deserve to be there. Oh. You don't feel like you've earned the, the right to be there and to be doing that particular job? or Can you get it in any other aspects of your life, or is it just with work? Do, you, do people experience it? No, I think you can experience it in many aspects. I mean, like physical fitness, I get it. And I was, you know, I was, we could go on to speak about I walk in the hills with you guys. Mm-hmm. And um, I have sometimes have a belief when you guys are walking in front of me that I don't deserve to be there. And then a narrative comes up that, you know, what have I got in common? These guys are half my age. Why am I with guys half my age? I've not got the physical fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. Because I'm gauging myself against you and you're much more physically fit than I am. And, and yeah, maybe we don't have the same interest in music, fashion, um, etc. But the mere merit that we're on a hill means that we've actually got a common goal. Mm-hmm. We've got a common objective. Yeah. But that seems to get ruled out when the imposter syndrome takes hold and the inner critic's banging about your mind. Mm-hmm. I saw that. You brought up an interesting point about like, teachers, younger teachers that come into schools and the PE departments seem to be quite courageous and brave, the ones I've came across. But I suppose it comes down to the, the individual and their, their mindset. Um, but as you said, it tends to happen more in the younger age group rather than older, older, more experienced um, people. Is that right? Imposter syndrome, um, or would it be a mixture just dependent on? What I hear you saying there, Clark, is that younger teachers are coming in. And is it just that they've got more resilience or energy to fuel the armour of the armour of the role? They're able yeah. to, you know, they're able to wear the suit more confidently because they've got more enthusiasm, they've got more energy, they've got they've got youth on their side. But underneath it all, they're just kind of wet behind the ears. They're just out of university or whatever. And they're put in a role in, really, you're not that much older than your students. I know. Mm-hmm. I the think as well, you might, you might be right there. It's almost like the paradoxes you always speak about. Sometimes it can be the opposite to what you think it is. Mm-hmm. We've heard you speak about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, for something that happens quite a lot, then, if the stats are showing that, like a large proportion of people actually experience this. What do you think kind of, people can do to mitigate it if they constantly have to put a different kind of, person on in all these different environments that, are, that they kind of, find themselves in? You know what I mean? Where they maybe experience okay. imposter syndrome. How do you, kind of, what would your advice be to kind of, manage that almost? Okay. What, what, what way could you manage it if... Um if you feel like you're putting on a front, well, if you feel like you're always putting on a front, that's certainly one sure way to feed the imposter character. The level of incongruence between who you are or who you think you are versus the character you are portraying 
could be fueling these debilitating feelings, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the gap between who you are and who you need to be in your role and that gap between who you actually are and who you need to be in the role, that gap could be a breeding ground, if you like, for fear and inadequacy. Mm-hmm. And um, what we need to understand is that people who don't feel like imposters, they're no more intelligent or capable than you or me, okay? The only difference is that during a situation that triggers that imposter feeling in us, they think different thoughts. Now, that's good news because it means what you have to do is learning to think like a non-imposter. Mm-hmm. The first step is always the hardest step, in my opinion. We're talking about something that's that's it's a really vulnerable position to speak about feeling like you're going to get caught out, that you're an actor, that any minute now the walls of this facade that I've been put round about me is going to come crashing down, right, and I'm going to get caught out that actually I'm not capable, I'm not good enough, I don't deserve this position, right? So the hardest step that we've got, which genuinely the first step's always the hardest, is beginning to accept acceptance mm-hmm. and accepting that this is the way that you feel um, because shame and shame around about holding that belief system that you're not good enough or that you're going to get caught out of it. You know, this act is going to, this facade is going to melt one day and everybody's going to see and you're going to be, in, you're going to be exposed in front of the whole school. Um, that feeling of shame keeps a lot of people away from actually confessing about our own fraudulent feelings. And even less people are comfortable with vulnerability, you know. Uh, there's, there's times in our life where you'll feel stupid, but that doesn't mean that you are stupid. And it doesn't mean that you're an imposter. And it's helpful to start to separate uh, the fact from your feeling. Um, tackling imposter syndrome is to learn how best to manage the negative self-talk that comes with it. Because with that imposter syndrome that I'm going to get caught, um, that, that the world's going to find out that I'm actually not as qualified as I think that they think that I am. They think I'm more resilient for this position than I actually am. And goodness, if they if they saw how I was acting at the weekend when I was out with my friends or whatever, they wouldn't want me in this job, right? Mm-hmm. Making sense. Mm-hmm. Following. So tackling imposter syndrome is to learn how to best manage that self negative self-talk that comes with it. We need to train our brain to reframe those negative thoughts. Over time, this helps us to change the way that we consequently feel. The first step is to identify the trigger and the situations that spark that imposter syndrome. So for me, public speaking, um, interacting with senior colleagues, uh, talking up in team meetings. So when we're in a team meeting and I have to ping up an idea, is my hands going up? that imposter's coming up at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Or meeting new clients for the first time, right? So that's stuff for me that kind of, those are kind of attributes that that spark, if you like, or inflame that imposter um, in me. So it's not the trigger event itself that causes me to 
to feel or respond in a particular way. Rather, it's those negative thoughts and belief that influence our feelings and consequent behaviors. So we can learn to manage these thoughts in order to change how we feel when faced with these imposter-like triggers. So take, take, for example, public speaking, right? So for me, if I don't believe that I'm an, if I don't believe that I'm completely an expert in this subject, I'm certainly more likely to doubt um, my capability and then I'm going to feel anxious about presenting it as a result, right? So that's the way it would roll. So public speaking, I believe I'm not an expert, then I'm more likely to doubt myself. I'm more doubt, more, more, more likely to, to doubt my capabilities. And, and then I'm going to feel more anxious as a result. Right? But if I challenge this belief and acknowledge that I'm really, really passionate about the subject, then as a consequence, my confidence is going to grow and my ability to manage the natural nerves that accompany presenting this will increase. Does that make sense? You follow? Mm -hmm. So to do this, we need to take time to listen to our inner dialogue and um, what we're telling ourselves and what we're consequently feeling and doing or not doing. Then reframe that negative self-talk in a more positive way, focusing on what you objectively know that you can do. Challenge yourself to think this way the next time that you're faced with a trigger event and see how you feel as a result. Just keep repeating this process. Just repeat, repeat, repeat. See if it makes you feel any better and, mm. you know, learn how to recalibrate success. And, um, you know, do you feel comfortable with failing? Can I ask you that? Am I allowed to ask you a question or is it just you? That yeah, no, I. Right, so do you feel comfortable with failing? Do you know, do you know what's so interesting on that? Topic though, with regards to failing, see what made me reflect quite a lot. See, when I was down doing my mountain leader course there the last weekend, uh -huh. um, we were doing just when the guy was asking his questions, so the, the instructor was asking us questions, and see just automatically took me back to school. And I was sitting there and I was like, You don't want to answer out because you don't want to look stupid, you don't want to look inadequate, as if you've not yeah. been listening, or as if you should know the question or the answer to the question, but you, you actually don't. You're scared to answer out in case you look stupid yeah like i'm not scared it's weird because i in that situation i would like i did sometimes stay quiet sometimes i would answer out and then you did feel a wee bit silly but in other other things I'm, i wouldn't say i'm afraid of failure so going out and trying something that that's like like a difficult physical challenge for example like the three peaks that you and i tried to do clark where we tried to do it by foot wasn't yeah. afraid i wasn't afraid of failing that like i wanted I think, to go and give think, it a go so i think it depends what the what the situation is right okay yeah, the environment the environment point there by regards to like if we're in charge of it and we are in charge of planning it and then trying it then the fear of failure probably isn't there as much but uh -huh. you've made a good point Lewis, with the judgment side of it like it depends on the social environment that you're in so do you stay quiet or do you speak up mm. or have you got a fear of feeling inadequate so i suppose that's where the imposter comes in so when you feel when you feel that you've controlled the event, i.e., you've organised it, There's you're okay with there. failing around it. But when yep. you're in a situation where someone else is on the lead, or as you yeah. perceive them to be at the the the, the, the above us, yeah, right, um, yep. then you would maybe feel um, scared of failing by answering out or answering a question because one, you have a perception of control in the environment, and one, you feel out of control in the environment. Definitely, yeah. I don't. 
But I don't think it's even a, it's scared of failing. I think it's perceiving what others think of you. That's that's just yeah. totally what right. it is. And it's subconscious, it's drilled into your head, and that's what you you think. I'm not scared to give out a wrong answer. See if it was just you and me talking, or me and an instructor uh-huh. talking one-to-one, they asked me a question, I said something, I got it wrong. That wouldn't bother me at all. See if it's in a, in a big group, or in a lecture room, or in a classroom. It's a totally yes. different ballgame. And it's made me Absolutely. think hard about when I ask one of the pupils a question or that at the end of a lesson or during a lesson and they all stay quiet and you can expect them, why are you not answering out? You expect them to answer it a lot quicker, but like it actually made me feel how they must feel. You put on them might actually get on stage, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. if you maybe ask them in a quiet situation, if you get them to write it down or something, then it's going to, you you can maybe get, get the answer. They won't be as afraid to answer it or it's just, it just made me think a lot about it to be honest with you. Thought it was interesting. Yeah, it's a, a, you know, failing's a really, failing's a really great, great subject, and you know, it's one I'm quite passionate about. And we hear a lot about the need to fail fast, fail forward, and create the freedom to make these mistakes in order to drive continuing, continued innovation and evolution. And you know, failure now in our society is recognised as a key to growth. And uh, one of the challenges of imposter syndrome is that it keeps us firmly rooted in our comfort zone. The imposter syndrome grabs a hold of us and it owns us and it starts to grab us and it keeps us firmly stuck and planted in a place that we would classify as a comfort zone. When we start to sit down and get into conversations like this, we can learn that that comfort zone in inverted commas is less than comfortable in many ways. Um, But because of that, because of that imposter syndrome, it really makes failure a difficult notion to embrace. It's a really challenging thing for people. And when we set ourselves incredibly high and very often performance-based personal standards for success, we're at a risk of constantly feeling like we're not measuring up. And this, again, can also uh, prevent us from reaching our true potential. Uh, one way we can overcome this challenge is to adopt a growth mindset. I know that Clark's really big into that, so I had to drop that into the conversation because I, I see his wee ears pricking up there and his eyes open. Oh, yes, growth mindset. But, um, you know, the term growth mindset became really popular within your school environment, business environment. I hear it a lot in my work as well. And when we adopt a growth mindset, we thrive in a challenge and redefine failure not as an evidence of unintelligence, but as a heartening springboard for growth and for stretching our existing abilities. And we, we, we learn to break a thinking pattern and we really need to learn to redefine failure as an opportunity to grow. Challenge the fear of making those mistakes and see ourselves as, as a constant work in progress rather than attempting to present this perfect product that so many young people today are, you know, 600 pound bull, like, what do you call them? Balenciaga. Like Balenciaga. Balenciaga. But you see, I mean, you see I the have... guy designed them, he must be rubbing his hands. They just look like we cheap things with the wee Balenciaga. I, I, uh, written on it. 600 pound trainers at 14 years old. I've he had, must these, be laughing. Convers- oh, had these conversations with you, you know. 600 pound trainers at any year old. And, you know, it's like, that's that place of perfect... Where do you go from there? I know. You know, really? Constantly so chasing then, it. Well, this is the Sambas on it. Goes to work, don't you, with your Sambas? <laughs> Aye. You go to your work with your, 30, your tongue your tongue wrapped right down over the... I've got duct tape over the big toe. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the Velcro as well, so he doesn't need these laces. <laughs> but, um, 
<laughs> I also think we need to give learning outcomes equally as much weight in our measurements of success as those performance outcomes that they're all written in the boards, the whiteboards in our business places, and um, I'm sure you've got them in your school, but not just as individuals, but totally across organisations as well, and start to focus on what you're learning and not just how you're performing. Unearthing our innate curiosity supports this, and you know, getting rid of that imposter barrier that's keeping us in our comfort zone and unearthing this curiosity and um, to be curious. We really need to feel comfortable in not knowing all the answers. We need to ask questions and explore uncharted territories. We need to take a, a ship through waters that we've never sailed through before. And we need to embrace the idea of being a novice in that area and have some trust that we're going to get to our destination in these uncharted territories. Um, taking small steps or giant leaps whatever that might be, outside of our comfort zone to identify opportunities for continued development and growth. Uh, creating a growth mindset culture, we also need to encourage continued commitment to collective behaviours such as sharing information, collaborating, seeking feedback and accepting the mistakes. And an imposter syndrome, I think we find that difficult. We find that difficult to... Um, grow together and tackle feelings um, personally and indeed at an organisational level. So, mm -hmm. does that I, answer your question? Does yeah, definitely. I think, it, I, I think the thing that rung true with me is just learning to accept it. Don't, it's, not, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's almost as if it's shamed, do you know what I mean? And it's a vulnerability it's and it's a stigma attached to it and that's why we... We don't want anybody to, to kind of know about it, how we feel. Nobody wants to speak about it. And that's why we just keep cruising by at that level, the same level, and don't want to try anything else. I think it's about just accepting it. That's how you feel. Ex accepting it and normalising the behaviour. Um, rem rather than trying to suppress it. Rather than trying to suppress it. Rem you know, and, and start to remember that you're not alone. Uh, you know, be brave. Talk to somebody you trust about how you're feeling and the chances are that the person you speak to has felt the same way as well. When you realise that somebody who you've admired or indeed feared also worries about their achievements, this can really give us a helpful perspective in our own anxieties and opens up opportunities to seek support and asking for help for somebody from somebody who's effectively conquered these same negative beliefs, if you like, mm. or, or may even still be working on that they managed in the day. You know, I'm 48 years old in November and there's still things that I'm still working on and I've not got the answer to and I don't ever think I will. Like your beard? Like my beard. <laughs> have I got it right? That's a, a, a Movember effort and a half. No, Is that answer like, what you were... Absolutely. More, more and more, more like half every day. <laughs> no, no, Ross, when you're talking about the perfect product that brought, brought, kind of brought to my attention the social media as well, it puts a lot of pressure on young people as well to have that perfect product. I don't think that helps. But also had a light bulb moment as well when you spoke about the growth mindset culture and trying to, I suppose that as a way to mitigate I'm imposter syndrome, but I don't even think of linking the two of them because, as you said, imposter syndrome is more of a fixed way of thinking. And obviously that growth mindset helps to open up your world and, you know, have a positive belief about improvement and mastery goals rather than performance goals. So on to the kind of judgment side of things, 
how do you feel when people judge you for the stuff that you do? Because the question is, like, you know, the most important conversation is the one that you have with yourself. Um, we hear that, we hear that, we hear that a lot. And you know, how how true do you feel this statement is? And how can how true I... do I feel the only conversation you have is the one with yourself? Yeah. Wow, it's uh, it's very true. It's a, I believe that to be a very true statement. You know, um, we all have an internal dialogue. We all have an inner, an inner voice, if you like. And quite simply put, there's not somebody living inside the machine. That's just our thoughts. Uh, that little voice in our head that comments in our life. Now, whether, whether that's what's going on around you or it's what you're thinking subconsciously or unconsciously, Every single one of us on this planet, and there's 7.5 billion of us, are all having an internal dialogue, and it runs all the time. It runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and um, some of us pay more attention to it than others. Uh, others are more skilled at manipulating it. Uh, some of us are able to apply logic to what's happening, when it's happening, and Sometimes that logic, unfortunately, might be skewed by an emotion that's associated to the critic. Um, and, you know, there's a huge importance to internal dialogue. I think it was, I can't remember, it was Socrates, or, oh, it was one of the famous philosophers who said, I think, therefore I am. And mm -hmm. uh, it's part of what makes us human. You know, that inner voice, that, that inner voice can be both critical and passionate. It can be both. Um, and then with, with imposter syndrome, it's more a negative self-talk. It's and more, more a critical. It's more a critical. Because we, te we teach uh, positive self-talk as, uh, as an approach to cope with anxiety and anger uh -huh. and, and PE. So, yeah. um, I mean, there's a lot of judgments go about these days, especially on social media. Um, I suppose for people listening, I'm sure they'll be wary of judgments from people in their own workplace or in terms or in general life, do you have any strategies for people who have this worry of what people think of them and how they can have a more positive self-talk to overcome it? Um, okay, so this is just my belief system. And my belief system on this is... Oh, oh sorry, um, like, does it bother you when people judge you in a negative way or... Other view, kind of forty-eight now, almost forty-eight, as you said. If you are you sort of doesn't bother you anymore. Doesn't bother me as much. I don't get hooked by it the same as I did when I was younger. But I think that a lot of that is because I have stopped judging myself negatively. So if right. I have a judgment about myself that's very negative, perhaps about my weight or my receding hairline, whatever that might be, and that bothers me and I judge it. If you were to say something about my weight and I'm already judging it and feel bad about it, that would be paralyzing. Yeah. Whereas when I accept those, shall we say, negative, negative things about myself and I accept them, the judgment or criticism from the external 
it's like water off a duck's back effect. Got you. Like, yeah, got you. So it's the things you don't like about yourself. If people bring it to the, the light, then that has a paralyzing effect on you. That can have a, that, yep. that would have had a paralyzing effect on me. Yeah, move you know in in the past, but um, you know a lot of the ways that you think. Um, so what, what is it? What is it they say in psychology? Good, you're, you're asking me. You rack my brains here. Something I've not done for probably twenty years, but. Thoughts, feelings, actions. So we have a thought and a feeling, and that feeling creates an action. So whatever it is that talk is going on inside our head, that's a thought. Those thoughts are then associated to a feeling. That feeling could either be a very constrictive, very closed, very ice and insular kind of way of being, or it could promote connection and moving forward and resilience. So. Um, if you're cl- if you're inclined to be anxious, your internal dialogue is going to reinforce that. Uh, the commentators suggest that anxiety can also upset your internal dialogue, and that's just going to create a vicious cycle. You know, you and I had the conversation, or you asked me about sticking a pencil in your mouth. Um, you hold a pencil in your mouth and create a feeling of, like you're smiling, and that changes your physiology and it changes you how you are in your brain and actually over over a period of time, it actually tricks you into thinking that you're happier than you might be. You remember having that conversation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so being able to have positive internal dialogue and look on your bright side can help you feel more positive and, and that can help your mood. Um, all this combines to suggest that learning to manage your internal dialogue is likely to be really important. It really is important for your mental wealth, well-being and potentially how you perceive yourself and then in turn how you perceive how other people perceive you how you're mm. seen um how do you manage it i think was what you asked me first and foremost like acceptance you become aware of it uh, before you can manage your internal dialogue you've got to be aware of what's going on there i'm going to give you a personal example is that all right and it just came to me so about two or three weeks ago, I went off to do um, a ridge walk, uh, longest ridge walk on the British mainland up, up in Glencoe in the, 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 the Scottish Highlands called the Anakinic Ridge, right? And set off and in conditions that it's advised not to do it in, right? And I'm walking along and I was scared. I wasn't afraid, but there was fear. And that there's a difference in that. And the fear was heightening my awareness it was making me more um uh more aware of how i was moving and walking the fear was actually it was increasing how i was perceiving my environment uh, because i knew that i was in a threat response so that was good so but i was also very mindful as well i was also watching what was going on around me and um i was very 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 aware of my internal voice I was very aware of what was going on in my head because I was super hyper-focused on walking this ridge that I know Lewis has done it. It's a two-meter ridge maximum, and at either side, it's a 3,000-feet drop. And as I said, the weather conditions were terrible. And as I was getting close to the edge, I heard my mother's voice very distinctively saying to me, harshly, stay away from the edge. But that voice wasn't a voice of 2020. It was a voice talking to a child in 1975. And in that moment, I became very aware 
that I regressed to a three-year-old child, which was not helpful in some regards when you're on a two-meter ridge with a 3,000-foot drop at either side of you. <laughs> and that got me thinking whilst I was on that ridge was, was my mother's fears of me being hurt or injured, but I was also, whilst on the ridge, transported to a bridge in Hamilton that I was crossing at three years old where she scornly shouted at me through her fear to get back from the edge, right? So 45 years later, 48-year-old guy almost, walking along a ridge, there's still that internal dialogue, that internal na narrative, which is my mother's voice, which I've interjected inside of me, that when I get close to the edge of something, her voice comes in. Of course, she was doing it through her fear and didn't want me to fall. But I started questioning for the rest. Didn't have a lot else to do as I was scrambling over ridges, but I started to think, was that fear and that internal voice that I've now adopted is that a help or a hindrance in my development of getting over the rest of these ridges? Does that so make that, sense? Uh, so, that, so that past event was then coming back in, and did that help or hinder you then? I believe it hindered me, and I started to think of those First Nations, or as they were called in the time, Native American Indians that built New York, and you might have seen them on the scaffolding, you know. Yeah, hmm. at the Rockefeller Centre. Yep. Right. There's Rockefeller building, they're all in that building. metal uh, beam, eating yes. a piece. Uh, yes, uh, yes, that's exactly it. And I started to think about that picture in my mind, and I goes, I wonder if any of their mums ever shouted at them when they were close <laughs> to the edge. Right. And then see the conversation you had with the people that you climbed the ridge with? Yes. Was there any past feelings coming up within their thoughts as well, or any... I never asked. I never. No. It was only. It was and only. Then, it no. only. It only came. It only came to me there when you asked me the question. I was then reminded of we're talking about this internal dialogue, this internal voice that a lot of us have um, have. Um, it's been hereditary. We've passed. Yeah, been. That's really interesting. How yeah, that past experiences and it's certain certain environments make it flare up. Yes. So no. my question would be to you then, if it was raining and the weather was the same, would you do it again? Yes, I would do it again, but I would be betterly prepared. Okay, in terms of the equipment that you have? With the equipment. And that's another way to manage anxiety and the imposter yes. syndrome. Be prepared. For better be, preparation. It's, it's, Makes it's you more better. confident, but you know yourself, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's probably the best probably the best bit of advice. Just be prepared. Just be prepared. But you know, you're never going to be able to cover all eventualities. But yeah, definitely. Set, setting off when the when the Met Office and the mountain weather told you not to, with no rope, no harness and no hat, <laughs> probably not the smartest thing that I could have done. But again, I got through it and there was massive amounts of learning from it. Exactly. You probably learn more from those situations than you do in if it was a sunny day just walking along it. Of course. Definitely. You, you must have had to have to show some resilience and calmness in that situation because as, as you said, you can't prepare for every eventuality. So it's really how you cope with it in the moment. When you get into that moment where the weather's turning on you and you're scrambling with, with the big steep uh, drop, it doesn't matter how prepared you are, it's how you then deal with that situation, isn't it? The faces in front of you. Well, you know, where you, you know, it's starting to become aware 
like I, I think that there's certainly research into um there's a goodness, I'll get you the guy's name. Um the great neuroscientist who talks about that hyper focus that when we can and we can train our brain, totally different podcast, but that hyper focus, well, I experienced that. It was almost like being in a living car accident. You know how time slows down if you've ever been in a car accident, you're you're hyper focused on the on the one singular. Well, because of the level of danger and the prolonged level of danger, it wasn't just it wasn't it was it was a five kilometer ridge. It's five kilometers long. Um, the weather was really bad. We had no rope. Uh, other people were feeling feeling scared. So really hyper focused on that. Uh, you were getting to see almost the the other characters that were going on inside you. You were getting to see the negative part of yourself. You were getting to see the competent part of yourself. And where your internal dialogue goes, if you let it wander. This can give you a good idea of what would be bothering you at any given time. I learned that. Whether you tend to think positively or negatively, or if your uh, dominant time orientation is to the past, the present, or the future. Uh, you know, whether my motivation was to tend to think about wanting more good things. So I wanted to go over that ridge. And when fear started to come in, I noticed how it was skewing my judgment it was starting to become potentially dangerous to feel uh, uh, that negative. That negative voice was making me feel a negative emotion, which was actually making me be overly cautious, which could have been potentially more dangerous. It was also making me freeze a little bit as well. It was making me feel quite paralyzed instead of, um, and then being able to observe that there was a competent part of myself that I was able to, access learning skills that I've learned through the mountain leadership course that I'm doing and the resilience that I've had of being in difficult situations before and then actually metaphorically putting the rope around that internal character mm-hmm. and relying on that more than the other ones that were at play does, 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 mm-hmm. does that, does that yeah I think I think because it's such a high pressure situation surely when you go to do a public speaking event now, you can draw on that event. Like, as David Goggins says, he puts you put it in the cookie jar, so you can now go into the cookie jar and use that experience because everything's just trivial to that, surely. Yeah. That's Absolutely. life or death. So that's a good, great story there. So something yeah. you can something you can draw on, I'm sure, to help you through there. So everyone thought uh, everyone wants to think they're doing a good job, Ross. I'm sure you agree. I believe everybody wants to make progress. Some people just have restrictions in place to making progress. So what do you think people can do then to lessen the anxiety and worry that surrounds, you know, the global pandemic at the minute and how it must be affecting people's lives? Mm. You threw in the global pandemic. That's a slightly different narrative to the question that uh, it throws a whole different set of meaning on it. But if we just keep it simple, I know that time, I know that, you know, time's starting to skip on by, but let ourselves off the hook. Um, learn to let ourselves off the hook and take ourselves down off that that cross that we've got ourselves on in a lot of ways because our internal chatter or our own feelings of inadequacy, they're going to fuel the anxiety and that's going to fuel the way that others look at you, how others talk to you and how you perceive yourself. 
you know, so if, if, how can you lessen the anxiety around about what other people think of you? Well, think better of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, have more, have more belief in yourself and let yourself off the hook. I think that would be a simple answer to that. Is be kinder to yourself. And, you know, you know, realistically, you passed the interview, you got the degree, you drove mm-hmm. yourself in a high-powered vehicle to work that day or got public transport. You're capable enough of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's a part of you that would be in closed mindset that, that, that's wanting to draw you into the mouth of the cave and keep you in the darkness that you're not good enough. It wants you to feel anxious. It wants you to feel separate. It doesn't want you to be part of a collaborative team. It doesn't want you to feel as if you belong. Whereas growth mindset is the total opposite of that. It wants to bring you out of the cave. It wants to put you in the sun, get your set of shades on, and, you know, experience the sun and experience the collaborative partnership that's available in your workplace. And really, your biggest critic is yourself. No, I think you're spot on. The pressure and anxiety I've had as a teacher is, is down to... The pressure I put on myself to look good and to look as if I'm trainers, do you mean? No, I was just getting the Nikes, mate. That's all I can afford now. Did you not have a good did you have a, a Gucci hoodie on to work the other day? I'm not a principal teacher yet. Um yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, so no, I think it all comes from from my experience here, it comes from myself putting high expectations on yourself to the point where you're so obsessed with what you're doing and so obsessed with yeah. achieving your to-do list that you forget you forget the collaboration that you can have with teachers in the department and you just once you take that leash off yourself almost it's like you just relax and you're there more yeah in a better mindset and then better results come from it so like teachers are vulnerable people who teach vulnerable people from the research that i was doing on imposter syndrome in teachers so we are vulnerable because obviously the nature of teaching uh, supplies us with constant, a constant stream of uncertainty, especially at the minute with all the changing protocols within the school um, and guilt as well. So if you don't think that you've done enough for a certain people or a conversation you had or something that you should maybe have said at the time, you always kind of maybe regret certain things that you've said and you could have made them better. So what's your thoughts on having that reciprocal vulnerability within our schools and exposing this to others around us to make sure that we can maximise our teaching and learning opportunities for the next generation of young people. Wow. What a fantastic... That had to come from the guy that's got the Masters in Growth Mindset, didn't it? What an incredible question. And that's one I would like to think about for a wee second. Wow, what an amazing question. Um, the minute... Sorry, I just I heard you on Monday night talking about that with um, Mike. Yes. On, on your live your live podcast on Monday ah, night. Ah, right, okay, okay. He was, ta- he was talking about the power of vulnerability, wasn't he? And yes, we were, we were discussing that. But, you know, the minute you said the word vulnerability, it just, I think it's a great word. And, you know, it comes from the Latin. Oh, oh give my cleverness away here. It comes yeah, from the Latin. Uh, vulnerea. Uh, vulnerea, was it vulnera? Vunerere, it comes from the Latin vunerea, which means to wound. Okay, so the majority of us hold a core belief that vulnerability is a wound that we would rather not face. Some walk about feeling like their job is a role. They hold their breath when they go into work and don't come up from, 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 for air until they leave and loosen their tie and try and let go 
of the stress, uh, the stress that, that that's been caused by carrying that suit of armor around all day with them, and that stress is the cost of that. The incongruence, and this ties in a bit. I'm going to answer again, I guess, in a roundabout way, something that Lewis asked me earlier on. But the the incongruence between who we think we are versus the role can be miles apart. Society's taught us to be strong and project authority and confidence, but inside we don't feel that. Uh, I think reciprocal vulnerability is a fantastic behavioural change model. It really, really is. But like all behavioural change models, Clark, the benefit only comes from the delivery of such model. Being vulnerable without an anchor could be dangerous. You know uh, what I mean? What I mean by that is being vulnerable and not being okay with that could be very wobbly. And somewhere those around us could gravitate to our rescue and trying to fix us. And when then what happens is we feel stupid, we feel filled with shame, and we lose trust in our colleagues. For me, that's not okay. But being okay with being vulnerable, being able to be completely transparent and open about it, can do the opposite and drive effectiveness and um, and allows us to to take more accountability. Um, and be more supportive, I think, in, in my opinion, for it to work effectively, to answer your question. For that question to work effectively um, due to its emotional content and from a society that has not encouraged emotions very well, this model can only be effective when everyone within the structures on board, what I mean by that is a team of emotionally intelligent employees who are not risk adverse, and are willing to try anything, even if they are not confident. And going out, and even going out with, but even within that behavioural change model, you know, going out with your uh, job description and doing uh, doing whatever needs done, be that picking up rubbish, or um, you know, putting the bin out, or spending that extra few minutes after the bell's gone with somebody that's been struggling. Um, I feel that that would be a hugely rewarding system to inhabit, a system that would value trust, respect, and mutual participation, free from the stress of having to get it right all the time, uh, from failing, feeling absorbed by shame, and the cycle of not trying becomes a more prevalent one. So when we're filled with shame, uh, we give up, and um, we stop trying, whereas, when we can embrace vulnerability, that's the root of creativity. That's where creativity lies. And we can really start to be more fluid and more transient in our approach. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's why, definitely. That's why people lack creativity, because they feel vulnerable and they don't want to express maybe these ideas or whatever they're thinking. Yeah, because I vulnerability is at the heart of creativity. It's, yeah, Ross, I'd like to get your views on this. Do you think this is the best time for everybody within, not just our school, as a team of staff? Because we're all feeling vulnerable just now. I think this, I think this uh, pandemic might provide a great foundation for, for us to move forward with that vulnerability because there's so much vulnerability there at the minute. There is. I feel that, I feel that within the school at the minute. There definitely is. There's a lot of vulnerability. But I would ask you, if you hone in on it, is it vulnerability or fear? Is it uncertainty? Is it panic? Is the vulnerability 
coming from a place of fear and not knowing and uncertainty and an inability to plan perhaps effectively because you don't know if you're going to be open in two weeks. Yeah, there's no so, end goal. I think that's having an effect on it as well, like knowing the, the standards for the courses as well and what what's expected uh, of the kids. If you, if I can cast your mind back to like the 23rd of March when we went into lockdown, it was almost like as the world locked down, we were faced with ourselves. And for a lot of people, they found that very, very difficult to be with yourself. Now, that's where vulnerability comes in. Vulnerability mm. comes in with an ability to be with yourself and be able to sit with one foot in the river and one foot in the banking. So the river of vulnerability and the banking of solid strength, if you like. Um, because if you fall into the river completely, you're useless to nobody. Whereas when you're on the banking totally, you're very rigid in your constructs. Yeah. So that. it's learning to have one foot in the river of vulnerability and one foot planted, grounded in the banking. And not to let the vulnerability take you away. That's where I think that the model that you asked me the question on, because if somebody, like, there's being vulnerable and there's being flaky, right? And there's showing your emotions and there's being vulnerable. And it's like, if I'm with a client and the client's experiencing something very, very emotional, um, if I were to shed a tear in their moment of despair, what I would be unconsciously communicating with them is I'm not strong enough to hold them. So I have to be empathic enough to have one foot in their world, but one foot in a world where I am holding them in a way, not hold, holding them metaphorically to allow them to experience the vulnerability. Whereas I think what you're asking me is slightly different around about is now a good time to implement it. Are we really talking about vulnerability or are we starting to talk about fear and uncertainty? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Something I would need to have a think about as well. Um, but looking at the, vulner uh, the kind of vulnerability side of it, how do we achieve the power in the vulnerability? Like, how do we get the power into it? Like, like, it's such a fine balance. Like, to get one foot in the river, one foot in the banking. Like, how do you get that? How do you get that perfect balance? Like, you allow yourself to experience it without getting um, overwhelmed by it. Right. It's almost like being mindful. It's like again these new age words, but like experiencing it without falling into it. And it's like, I'm feeling quite nervous about coming on today. Naming it to tame it, name it to tame it. But I'm not expecting you to take responsibility for me because a lot of that can get caught up in this kind of dialogue as well. It's like, well, if I'm vulnerable, then I'm expecting you to take responsibility for me. But that's not your job to take responsibility for me. Mm. That's your job to effectively manage me to be able to manage myself and my vulnerability. Yep. That's a we've, got such, we've got such a fixer and rescue in society that the minute somebody exposes vulnerability, okay, and they're flaky with it, we run in to rescue them. And actually what we do is we disempower that person. Aye. Our job. Yeah. And that's a whole other podcast for a whole other time. Okay. Finally, Ross, from what we've said today on the imposter, sorry, from what you have said, today on imposter syndrome and the inner critic. What do you think makes a high quality teacher? 
Right, I'm aware of our time and I can blether for, I can blether for Britain. Um, I'm going to keep that simple as well. A quality teacher, mentor, leader, in my opinion, uh, this would be it. You'll be familiar with the phrase, warts and all. Good old Scottish phrase, warts and all. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, to love yourself, um, warts and all, uh, that a good teacher as a person is okay with who they are. And that they've accepted their self, warts and all. If we hide or try to cover up certain things about ourselves, we run the risk of getting caught out. This cover-up uses unnecessarily fuel and a lot of energy, energy that could be better spent in being present, being available, and being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And what comes with that is a skill of not judging the outer and leaves a lot of space to be more effective and more authentic and less stressed. And wouldn't us all like a bit more of that? Absolutely. 100%. That's, that's a, something we can all strive towards, definitely. That's a grand vision. Mm -hmm. but, and it's also a different spin on it, because we always ask that question at the end of every podcast, so that was a, a, certainly a different take on it, so thanks for that. Right, Ross, we're going to put you in the spot quickly before we finish, because we like to do... I think the last thing you were on, we didn't do the quick fire round, did we? Right, no. okay. Three questions at the end, right? So We're going to give if, you a very quick fire round. If you could... Answer this, short, sharp questions, some yes. short, sharp answers. Right, finally, if you could have a billboard anywhere or in your hometown of Lanark, what would it say on it? Work to live, don't live to work. Love that. Brilliant. Love it. And that was off the cuff? That was off the cuff. Amazing, amazing. Right, what book, what book or books have had the greatest influence on your life? Oh, goodness, the Bible and um, hostile habitats, I think. Scotland's mountain environments. About the mountains in Scotland, some are gentlemen and some are monsters. You've got to learn how to ride them. Right, some, last one. I'll some, go with the last one then. Some are very yin and some are very yang. <laughs> right, last one, Ross. We always ask a, an advice question at the end, so this one's very um, related to what we're speaking about. So what advice would you give to someone listening to this conversation right now with imposter syndrome, what advice would you give for them tomorrow to help them? It's okay not to be okay. And it's, it's, it's the imposter wants to have control. It wants to keep you in a closed way of being. So ask yourself, what is it that fears you most about living more expansively? What is it that fears you most about living more expansively? Because if you're hooked into the imposter syndrome, it's got you caught in a closed mindset. You know, what's the worst that could happen if you let go? Brian, that's a great way to end with a couple of questions there for anyone who's having difficulty with imposter syndrome. So thanks very much, Ross, for coming on to a wee bit of everything tonight. We've really enjoyed your company. You've been uh, first class. A lot of good points you've made. So, good man. Thanks for your time. Ross, See you at the water at the weekend, hopefully, boys. I, I, I'm, coming, I'm coming up to Lanark on Saturday, so we should catch up. I'm coming up to cool. Lanark for a run. Great. Excellent. Right, have a great day at work tomorrow, and thank you very much for having me on. Really appreciate it. It's always good to see you. So at the end of every episode, we always have a key takeaway message from myself and Lewis, so keep this one um, short and sharp. Um, we're releasing this during November, um, which is a, a time where um, everyone 
looks out for each other's mental health and tries our best to um, share strategies on how we're all coping with uh, an uncertain time at the minute. And, you know, just uh, how we can all help each other. So my key takeaway message, Ross had loads of good points that he made throughout the podcast um, on how to combat imposter syndrome and feelings of shame, feelings of of uh, inadequacy. So might as well just be, you know, it's okay not to be okay and, you know, take off that that armour that's that you're putting on and putting round about you and, you know, show a wee bit more of your true self rather than trying to put on certain behaviours that aren't congregant with your true self. That's something I've been trying to do. Um, over the course of my life, I'm not there yet, but it certainly does help to know that people, all other people that you have conversations with, like the ones like tonight, um, we're all we're all experiencing the same things, really. So that'd be mine. What would you yours be, my wee friend? My wee friend. No, I think it's just pretty much just taking a solidify what you said there. Um, I think it helps speaking about it definitely because we are all going through the same sort of sort of things just a lot of people don't speak about it and um, I thought it was just really interesting what Ross was talking about and I think the main thing that kind of rung true for me was just kind of don't suppress it accept it talk to people about it if there's if you are getting those kind of if you're having that negative dialogue you don't feel like you're good enough to to do a job or whatever it may be if you don't feel good enough at your sport if like, I think he said it can be in anything didn't he so it can be relationships mm. and like that so um, I thought it was I just accept it, don't try and suppress it and that's kind of, like you said, that was the kind of breeding ground for it, wasn't it? You suppress it, it just makes it worse and you don't get any better at whatever it is you're doing, you just kind of cruise by, you don't try anything different and you keep doing what you've always done. And if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Definitely and I think, I remember, remember the Rio Verdun podcast you told me to listen to through High Performance Podcast, he said that he struggled with his mental health and the one thing it got him through it was talking more simple as that, just communicating your feelings and emotions and something that um, people can struggle doing. But uh, that shows yeah. that shows vulnerability, but doesn't it? And then it's the, the stigma that comes with that, and that's why people don't want to talk about it or anything. So, so just trying, just trying to break that and making it more of a, an acceptable thing to do. Exactly. But yeah, that would be my takeaway message from tonight's episode, and I thought that was. Great speaking to Ross. He always uses great analogies and that, didn't he, to help you understand things. So that was really appreciate him coming on and it was a great insightful episode into imposter syndrome or feelings of fraudulence, like he put it. Yeah, super interesting. He's always got a good way of putting his point across and yeah, we're looking forward to the next episode already. We're it, back on. He has a way with words. Yeah, he has. For the people that are tuning in and aye, we'll be back again in a week's time with another fresh episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. In the meantime, have a great week and take care of yourselves.